Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Balaguer Guitars. Founded in 2014, Balaguer Guitars strives to bring modern aesthetics and options to vintage-inspired designs. Go to balaguerguitars.com for more info. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Fishman, inspired performance technology. Fishman is dedicated to helping musicians of all styles achieve the truest sound possible wherever and whenever they plug in. Go to fishman.com for more info. And now your host, Al Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for being here. I am uh, Al Levy. With me is one of my production heroes, Machine. Aww. Welcome. Thank you, dude. So sweet. Well, I'm, you know, I'm just being honest. And uh, I'm sure you know who he is. In case you don't, you should just look him up. Machine, the producer, has done legendary records for years now with bands like Lamb of God, Suicide Silence, Clutch, Mindless Self-Indulgence. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. <laughs> I could sit here for a long time and read it. Crowbot, Fall Out Boy. I mean, it's a long list. So thank you for taking the time to talk to me. And... I've been looking forward to this. You got it. It's good for me to do this, dude, because I'm not big. Um, I think there's a little mystery here and there around me because uh, I'm not one who's big on blogging or going in chat rooms. And I like have like a social media like retardation fear. It's like I, it's tough for me to do that. I'm like much happier. Just working, doing the work in the studio, and it's so important. So thank you for having me on here, because this is a big avenue to connect out there in the digital world, you know. You definitely have been a uh, a mystery to me for a long time, and I know to a lot of people in the community, you've always been one of those producers that people heard about and listened to and loved their work, but... It was very, very hard to find anything about you yeah. aside from maybe an article here or yeah. an article there spread out over the years. But all in all, it's been very hard to track stuff down. So I know that I've got a lot of questions that have been building up over the years, as well as our listeners do. But I wanted to ask you about something. I read somewhere that uh, your parents are classical musicians. Is this true? Oh, yeah, don't, really, big time. Well, my dad passed away recently, but... Um, Sorry he was that. Uh, ah, it's all good, man. Yeah, my dad was a clarinetist in the New York Philharmonic. Well, my dad's a conductor. I knew that about you, too. That's, ma that's major. Maybe they met each other at some point. Probably. And my mom, as well, they're both clarinetists. My mom, as a, she would fill in, do big fill-ins and orchestras, and taught at Juilliard and Manhattan School of Music and certain high schools. And um, yeah, I was like, definitely grew up all around classical music. And uh, I chose the dark side. I chose the dark side of rock and roll. <laughs> my, my parents were like, they like, my parents even like missed the Beatles. You know, cause I'm, I'm older and they're older, you know? So I like, my form of rebellion was being into, you know, pop music, rock music, heavy music. And uh, it's great. I've got this great 
classical and progressive music DNA, like programmed from biology and nurturing in my household. But I chose the route of my heroes, like Eddie Van Halen and Jimi Hendrix, and never rebelled by never learning to read music or never knowing theory and just like forcing the use of my ears and listening and, and feeling it. And um, I'm not recommending that to your audience, but <laughs> that was my form of rebellion. Were you inundated in classical music, though, from the time you were a kid? Not by choice, just by situation? By situation, yeah. My dad would yeah. be rehearsing, you know, all day I would go to Lincoln Center, you know, be taken backstage and see as many classical shows as I would ever want. Then there would be my mom teaching in the house, you know, like, you know, pretty high, pretty high end like, classical people, you know? So yeah, just by being there. Yeah. So you, so you, I don't know. I feel like that's my childhood too. Just going to concerts that's- all the time, just being around musicians practicing in the house. Yeah. Like everywhere you go, it's just classical music. And then at one point, it was like, fuck this, I'm learning guitar. Yeah. My parents, they did not want me to get into music. They basically, they were just sort of like, I think they, they knew how hard it was, you know, as professionals to make money and be successful in, in music. And they were just doing, and they, not just they were doing you know classical music which is very different than what we do because like i would say to my dad hey dad you're really lucky because all you have to do is be great like in popular music you know you have to be great and then there has to be much more you have to know the right people you have to have an it factor you have to connect it's like when my dad auditioned for the new york philharmonic with probably hundreds of clarinetists didn't matter if you were black, white, fat, skinny, ugly. You would go behind a curtain and all these professionals would just listen to you. Yes. And they would choose the best player. And I was like, man, imagine if I just had to be great. Like, if I could just go and learn to play music great. And I was like, I would, that's simple. I would just practice and be great. But in our world, it's much greater than that. It's like being great isn't good enough. You know, it's, it's super duper a part of it. But like there's a million other planets to align to be successful in popular music. I also think that, that in classical music, the level of great is very different than in our world. Like, for instance, on technical skill wise on the instrument, they're almost like Olympic athletes in the classical world. Yeah. The level at which they can play or read at it comparably, I think, is higher. But I think you're <laughs> right that there's a lot of other stuff involved in our world that has you can't get around it. The stars have to align in a business sense and timing sense. Mm-hmm. And all yep, those yep, things yep. have to happen in our world or it doesn't matter how many hours you spend at the instrument. You won't have a chance if, you know, if you're playing the wrong style of, if you're yeah, playing the right yeah. style of music at the wrong time. You sure. Know, you're fucked. Sure. There's no, the, nothing good is going to come of it. Right. And then who you, and then there's situational luck. Who yep. becomes your friends, who you hang out, connect with. And then later on in business, who get, often gets to get enough of the slice of the piece of the pie that those gatekeepers open up 
for you to be heard because there's so many great we've all heard so many great bands and so many great records like, god this is the shit this is gonna blow up and nothing happens and it's just because it's if a tree falls in the woods and doesn't make a sound what's that expression right if a tree falls yeah, in the woods it exactly. doesn't it doesn't make a sound you know like keith richards said from the rolling stones i'm not the best guitar player the best guitar player is some dude sitting playing in some bar every night that's probably the best blues guitar player i'm just in the rolling stones so i get heard i get i'm out i'm put out there you know so it's the gatekeepers too that do that you know although we're seeing good really good moving trends in the record industry about bands succeeding so well without record companies and i i blown away with that that's a separate conversation but i'm blown away with how well i've seen bands do now without record companies with their own you know social media hiring their own label services doing it themselves maybe they get a smaller billboard you know what i mean like the record company you sell your soul to them and you know maybe they give you a big billboard right you know, you know what I'm talking, I'm saying that theoretically, yeah. like they have the, a little more power to promote, right? But then you're not making, you're not going to make any money. So it's like, because of the internet and because of certain bands and, and also largely EDM, EDM scene sort of and hip hop scene teaching us this, where bands are, kids and bands are starting to get super wise these days. Like, wait a second. Maybe I might not have the biggest billboard, but then I can in turn have make our own this size billboard and we can make more money and we can be a real band and do this for a long time. I've got a perfect example. Recently, this, uh, this guitar player I know named Jason Richardson put out a solo record without a label, just himself. Good for guitar, him. Guitar, instrumental music, sold 7,000 copies the first week and all on his own which means that all that money is his. Can, and yeah. so if you figure $10 times 7000 in that first week, do you know how many records he would have to sell on a label to see that kind of royalty check? Totally. And dude, if I had done this interview with you five years ago and you had said, do you want to produce bands that aren't on a record company? I'd, I'd say, no, no, I'm not looking for that. I'm... But now, today, I'd be like, it wouldn't be a factor. You know, it's like Clutch, no record. They have, you know, they're off all that. And they have, well, they have a record company, but it's their own record company. And the only band they put out is themselves. And I've done another two records. One I'm currently in the middle of now, and another one, Prestamico, that have, they have chosen. They're smart. They have, well, they have, okay, they have, they do have a booking agent and they do have a smart manager, but they have chosen no record deal. They've been, they have been offered small deals from, you know, what in, you know, what would be like our Sumerian level, entry level type. Yeah. And they look at them. And their manager looks at them and goes, well, this is a shitty fucking deal. So, so it's like, so they're just like, yes, we'd love a record deal and, we're, and we'll be tied in for so many records and it could squash our career. So they're just like, we're very open to a record deal, but we're just waiting till we can be offered one that makes business sense. Until then, we're selling merch, we're booking tours, we're making money, we're doing it. 
And it's just, it's like these bands are starting to connect like, whoa, this is common sense. This is, and because of the, because of the internet and all these things that I didn't grow up with, the info is out there, right? It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Interview kooky heads that call themselves machine and going to spill out all the goods and info. You got to go check that out. <laughs> the thing about the goods and info is you still got to put in the work. So you can listen to interviews all day long, but yeah. you're still going to need to put in your 10 to 20 years of hard work. That's to right. Make good. So speaking of that, of putting in the work, mm-hmm. when you discovered rock and roll, yeah, how long did it take for you to then discover production? Um, well, I discovered rock and roll, of course, as a child. But I was in high school when I when I discovered production because it's simply just because I had songs I had songs to to make and record. And um, I had an older friend, Clinton Bradley, and he had like a like four-track recording studio, then an eight-track recording studio. So it was, at first it was just a way, you know, you know, we weren't born with laptops with GarageBand in them. <laughs> so yeah, it was a way, I, it was a way to, I learned, I would follow him around and do anything to learn off him and who's a very, very good friend, to, as a way to go in there to record my own music. And what I learned right away was, is sort of like, I just, even like the first couple of things I recorded kind of sound, they sounded good. Like I just sort of, I realized that I had a natural knack for that. You know, it's like, we all, we all have our things that we're good at and things, things we're naturally not good at. You know, not, I was like, it was good. I connected with that. And um, it made me like it, and and then I started doing it for my friends who were in bands, and to, to, to give you more like a picture of what it was like. I grew up in a town called Teaneck, New Jersey, which which was uh, very mixed culturally, and it was a lot, kind of the, almost like the birth of hip hop was there. Sugar Hill Gang, and and you know, I went to high school with Das Effects. It's like a classic old school hip hop band and just having the A track and a sampler that's I play guitar and like worshipped Eddie Van Halen and Jimi Hendrix and and these great technical blues players soulful players and I saw the birth of hip hop so yeah with my with Clinton Studio and my one sampler and my one sequencer which was on an Atari computer you know, no audio, no audio on a computer. No way, not even close to that yet. I could make hip hop records. I could, so, so that's how I started. I started taking this, like, this opportunity I had to work at Clinton's studio, you know, do anything for him, anything to work there. I would start, he worked at Sam Ash and he would like send me hip hop guys and I would like, <laughs> for like a hundred bucks, I would like, they would come in with like a record for a sample. And some lyrics written down and I would like program a hip hop beat and make a song, cut vocals, just vocals, mix it and do all that in one day. And, um, that's a big part of kind of my, what got me started. And I met some real talent, like real talent at that time that really influenced me to this day. And I could do that for, and as well, I, I, I would do that for my friends in rock bands before, 
before you had libraries like Stephen Slade, I would be making these libraries. Like I don't have any tracks to record on, so I would like take my sampler and I would put a drum set in a room. I would like literally make every key group all with other dynamics. I would like painstakingly create these things to use to fake, which we all have these days. And for the simple fact that I, I only had seven tracks, because of course the eighth track had to have sync, sympty on it. It'd have to slave all this stuff, your synths and your samplers. So yeah, that was my thing. Like I, it was fun. It was like, it was so cool to be, that was, that was cutting edge. You know, there weren't a lot of producers that could do that. So I existed in that time as a kid doing this, and I guess I was a record producer. I didn't still really know what a record producer was, but by just by pure default, I guess I was a record producer. And um, later I learned what a record producer is, and I just thought, well, I'll do that after my band blows up. <laughs> and like my record producer is like, they're like the old guy in the studio, right? So, and I was like, yeah, I'll, yeah, I could be a record producer. I'll be that later in life. So anyway, so I was like really great in the studio and a okay songwriter, you know? So uh, yeah, I, I had a band and it was, it mixed hip hop elements and heavy guitar elements. And it did it maybe like six, seven, eight years prior to say Limp Biscuit and Corn. Right. So it was like way before. I just remember like, we care a lot. Like, um, Faith was no that more. Faith No More? Like, there were hints and things like Run DMC would do a track with Run DMC would do a track with guitar on it. And it would just give me the biggest fucking boner to hear that. And I would just play my Eddie Van Halen stuff to like Kiss FM, which was the, which was the urban station. And I just knew it. I knew it. I knew, I knew that that was going to happen, but that was way too early. And record companies, you know, I would figure out my ways through hanging out with bands and people to get to A&R people, blah, blah, blah. Oh, side note, one of the people that I got to with Machine's music, it was called Machine, was uh, an A&R guy named David Bendeth. <laughs> he doesn't even know this. That's hilarious. <laughs> he, he called me back. He doesn't know this. Like, I, I first told him first, like, the other, like, not that long ago, I was like, you, do you know that you picked out my cassette and you called me? And, and anyway, he's like, no, I have no idea. <laughs> so this is what would happen. So they would go, whoa, this is, this is dope. Oh, this is really interesting. Well, we definitely don't know what to do with this. You know, it was at a time where you could just, you could just pitch yourself to a record company and they could invest in an artist. You didn't have to already have your numbers up on, on Facebook and YouTube, you know, this is yeah. all before that. You know, it was at a time where they had back catalog and you could, you could get a deal and quit your day job from just a development, right? So I would go in there and they would meet with me and, and they would go, oh God, this is, this is really cool. We don't really know what to do with this, but will you remix our artists? Because it's really cool what you're doing. We'd love to do it in a remix. So I was like, so sure. So I would, I became this guy who was putting beats, like hip hop beats and, and stuff to heavier bands. And one of those was White Zombie. 
You know, I got two White Zombie remixes on what was to become this White Zombie remix record called Super Sexy Swingin' Sounds, and it went like multiple platinum. I bought it. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what kicked it off. Like, I, did, I never signed up to be a record producer. It happened totally organically. I never worked in a recording studio, like a, like, like a traditional hard rock or rock producer, like as far as, you know, typical interning and engineering. I was just a rec, I was just a record producer. Engineering came backwards. Engineering came later. So I had this really, at the time, very good, unique skill of being able to take bands with organic elements, sync my samples and stuff, and add this production. It was like, it was a niche. It was a cool thing to do. And it was just something that not a lot of people could do. So Paul Adams, the, uh, the kid, the kid who was playing manager to me when I was playing band as Machine the Band, he later gets a job. He was a booking agent when we met and he wanted to manage me. And, and that was fun. I went to the, I went to the UK and I toured and I got all that out of my system and it was, Miserable living in the UK, but absolutely the time of my life as far as being that young and doing a few tours. And we put out. How old were you at that time? Bad with this. I would have been 25 just after school. Just after. Yeah, perfect age to do something like that. Just after college. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So, to make a long story short, so Paul, Paul now works at a producer management firm, a small one. And, and, uh, Richard Branson gets his record company back. He sold Virgin Records and he gets his record company back after five years of not being allowed to participate in the record industry. He, it starts up V2. So it's a new major label. And, um, their second signing was a band that was kind of like Beck. In other words, so it was like, it was this really talented kid. He wrote these great songs on his four track. It was one kid. He hadn't put the band together yet, but it was meant to be like, you know, a Beck mentality with like beats and loops and cool sounds and, you know, lots of sampling around these great songs with guitar and all this. So it comes into Paul's office they, where they manage producers and they were seeking a producer for this and they, they didn't really have anyone to do this. And Paul was like, Hey, listen, there's this kid from Jersey machine. He would kill this. You know, we don't rep him, but we don't have anyone. Give him a call, like to hook it up. So they flew these, they flew the three guys. There was a band now. They flew the three guys out to New Jersey. I did three tracks. I was immediately asked to produce the record and I just stepped into a major label record. And I was like, wow. I'm like, I'm young. I thought I was supposed to do this when I was an old guy. But you know, and I sat on it for a second, like, should I do this or should I continue trying to do my own music, you know, which was just too early. And I'm really, really happy I made that choice. Did you know that your music was too early at the time? Like, could you feel it? No, I just felt like I was doing the right thing for the moment. You know, I knew it was coming. I knew the storm was coming. Duh. I mean, fucking duh. Right? I mean, yeah. like, hip-hop, guitars, 
And it, now it's even back even more than ever. If we're looking at scene bands now, it's like, you know, th- we're not going to call it rap rock because that's not cool. But it's like, even now, up to the minute, like it's it was huge. It was gone, and now we're seeing elements back of you know in heavy music and and all kinds of music, all kinds of music, like mixing guitars and hip hop stuff. Duh! It's such an obvious combination. But uh, I can imagine that in like 1992 or three or four, you would have felt a little bit like a fish out of water. Yeah, trying to do that stuff. So, but there was nine. Inch, there was pretty hate machine from Nine Inch Nails. Okay, so there was. So, and I was sort of machines music, which, by the way, doesn't exist on the internet. <laughs> Thank God. Now I'm curious. Only Will Putney hides a copy from me of the actual machine <laughs> music. But um, So he's got it? I didn't say that. Did I just say that? <laughs> That's a fucking edit. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You don't have to edit that. He, yeah, he does. He's, he's keeping it from me. He found, it. he found a video of me with a song, and he's, he's holding it hostage from me. <laughs> Ransom, yeah, blackmail. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um. Anyway, what was the point of all this, Al? Oh well, we were talking about how you moved into working with bands and the decision to yeah drop your own music in because you felt like pursuing production was right. And I was just wondering if yeah. you felt like a fish out of water or anything like that. Back back in those days, no, because I was doing the same thing I did every day, but just in I'm the original DIY guy, right? Because I didn't traditionally start like all the other like most of the other rock producers by maybe interning in a studio engineering. I was the original back in the day DIY guy, making records, hip hop records, rock records, and I just I didn't know engineering. I was just making records and using my ears, and. It's what, it's just to answer your question. It's just, it's what I did every day. And then one day it came with a, a paycheck and a title. Like I'm now I'm a record producer and that, and that was it. So the only difference is, is that then I had to be thrusted into very expensive studios. Cause back then the major labels, you had to be in a big expensive studio and you had to be making your band broke in order for a major label to think a rock record was of any value. You had to spend a lot of, you had to spend money on it. So I was then thrusted into these, you know, big rooms and I've been, and I've been to so many of them now all over the world of your classic, you know, Ocean Ways and Sunset Sounds and so on and so on and so on and so on and so on. Bearsville and so on. So you had to do that. So what, what they would do with me at first is they would just give me like, I would go to, a, I would go to a big studio and they would just give me the best house engineer of that big studio to have my back miking everything up. And I would so be you'd just be like, we need drums, go mic them. Yeah. And I, and I had ideas and I had, cause I'd limited gear before this, you know, as far as tracking band gear, right? I just had what I had from Clinton's studio. So I had ideas and I was a bit of a control freak then too. So I would like insist, no, let's try this. Let's try that. But then I would, then I slowly in reverse, 
really started learning about engineering and now very, very interested and passionate on the engineering side as well. And my, um, all these first records, all these, I never even took an engineering credit. I did engineer, but I thought it wasn't, I thought it wasn't right to or smart to. I thought, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm the creative guy. It's produced and mixed by machine. Like, even though I was engineering, I, all these records, I wouldn't take an engineering credit. I do now because it's a very different, it's a very different scene. We all own our own studios now. And I'm very into engineering and I've learned a lot more and I've become quite the scientist, the physicist of recording and engineering and gear. I see. Did you feel like, did you not take the credit because you felt like you weren't experienced enough as an engineer or no. you weren't, didn't engineer enough on those records to warrant a credit? No, I just thought it wasn't right. I thought it wasn't, I thought it wasn't cool. I thought it was like, no, 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 I'm, I'm the producer and ah, I'm see. not the engineer guy. I didn't, I didn't start as an engineer. I wasn't an experienced engineer. You know, I would get mixes from like, I would get mixes from like huge engineers. You know, no, I wasn't, that's not what I signed up for. That's not what I was doing originally. You know, I was just working. I was like the original DI, the original DIY guy that just had what he had. And I didn't think it was important. I didn't, I thought what was important was to have more creative credits, just like, and not cloud it, just like produced and mixed. And that I would, you know what it was is I would never, I would never have want to be asked to be hired for a job as an engineer. I wouldn't have wanted it. I would have only wanted the job. I started as a record producer and, and, Got it. and, and if I figured if I put the engineering credit, someone might, hire me a job as an engineer and I wouldn't I wouldn't want that job. I would want to be the you know, I want to be the director, the coach, the the Smart. producer, the guy directing the talent. Like that's that was my and it's always been my biggest asset. Biggest asset to bands. Like and even to date, we could nerd the fuck out about engineering me and you, I'm sure if we wanted to, but let me just say even to date I really feel like engineering has like a price tag. Like, you know, like there's so many talented engineers that got there, but the guy who makes records better records, the guy who makes players better players, the guy who makes artists better artists, the guy who makes songs better songs, that's the producer guy. And that I feel like that's hard to put a price tag on. That's kind of like the priceless stuff. I completely agree. For Hey dudes, for like, Good message. Good message for everyone, even listening to this. Like, gear is awesome. Uh, learn to use it real well. Don't overdo it. Cut off. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Gear is, gear is important. And I was, you know, we could talk about gear for hours, I'm sure. But, you know, a message to someone, to anyone trying to, you know, cut their teeth in this, the worst thing you could do is don't, don't buy too much gear when you're trying to make something new. Take your time, get something, learn it like a, make it your bitch, learn it like a horse so you don't have to think about it so you can concentrate on music. I've made all my biggest, I've made a lot of mistakes getting too much gear too soon. And honestly, 
A lot of guys get hung up on this. They may think they need the new gear and this and that. And I can tell you that has nothing, nothing to do with selling records. I look back years ago to some of my productions where I had way less plugins or gear and it has nothing to do with, they still sound as dope and, and it has nothing to do with their success. You know, so it's like, um, it will make a difference in your life. Trust me. You need to find a way to stay on the music and stay on figuring out ways to make bands connect with other people through music and energy, you know, and, uh, the smartest thing you could do is learn the shit out of what gear you have and your ability to, your ability to tweak it fast and use it fast and not think about it will actually probably in turn maybe even make you dial it better. Did you ever have that? I guess it's almost, it feels natural almost to be like, oh, I need that piece of gear because that's going to make the difference. Have you ever had that instinct and then just told it to shut the hell up? I think that is a personality issue, what you're talking about, because I don't have that personality issue. In other words, but I think, I think there's a lot of people that do what we do and they do have that. Then all the companies are brainwashing you to think that that's their job. They're jo- all the companies, all the, you know, the new people putting out new plugins, new compressors, new drum heads, new guitar strings. Their job is to make you think that this latest, greatest oil coated drum head is going to do the next greatest thing or this microphone that combines this and that is the next greatest thing. And it's, it's this, this drum head is going to play itself. Yeah, it's, it's their job to do that. They need to put out a new product and. Yeah, you know, like, it's mostly bullshit. Like, I look back now, I'm very lucky I'm experienced. It's been like 20, 25 years. And I look back and I can think that there's, in my lifetime, there's only been a few pieces of gear that changed things, that stuck around and changed things. And I lean, when it comes to drum head choices or mics for drums, I lean on the ones that have, been test proven throughout the decades and I put all my creative energy into post. I'm like really into, I like keeping it what works, you know, fucking 421s on toms and 57 on a snare, make it what it works going in because it's the sound of rock and it's stuck around for a reason. And then, and then my new school creativity is post. It's like plugins and, and the new ways that you can destroy audio in the digital domain. That's kind of cool. Save your money. I completely agree. Are there are there any pieces that you feel are worth the investment in? Because I, I seem to remember you told me that you really like distressors. Yeah, no. We when we when we first hooked up and we chatted, we were like, we were saying like, okay, so what really what really came out of my lifetime that that's gonna that's gonna stick around for history. I could tell you one is I saw the distressor come out and that's not going anywhere. There's so few things we could mention, you know what I mean? That are, they're going to stick around. Songs are what actually stick around. Yeah, dude. Hello. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. And regardless of the recording quality too. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously I like things to sound good, but a great song trumps everything in my opinion. And yeah. I think in the public's opinion too. Yeah. 
Absolutely. On a nerd sense, my my absolutely best sounding productions are certainly not necessarily my biggest selling records. Hell no. Do you think that there's a correlation there or No, no, there's not a correlation there. It's just the fact that the fact that in the big picture, the regular people, the people, I mean, we're just a little we're just a little segment, like people like me and you. We're just a little segment of the world that are into production and a tiny, tiny, tiny. It's, it's minuscule. It's like a minuscule thing. And then the rest of the world, they're into music for, not for its production value. They're into music because they're, they're being sold, feeling energy and emotion and a lyric. Uh, you know, it's a physical, mental, spiritual thing. And your average dude's not paying, paying attention. Like, perfect examples. Like, I've actually never said this publicly, but like, I always, like, my every time I die record, got a phenomenon. I'm like, to date, still kind of really bummed on the guitar sounds. But Keith goes, hey, girls, I'm a cunt. And <laughs> it sold the record, you know? And I was like, hey, Keith, this is so important. We got to do this. We got to, like, break the band down and blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, <laughs> and, and uh, that, I, I think that's the biggest. I'm pretty sure that's the biggest selling every time I die record. Because the songs were good. And, you know, I pushed them to do to be the better every time I die. And, and, and I don't love, I don't love those guitar sounds, to be honest. Uh, there was this band called Job for a Cowboy. I, I know the, them. I have another story about those guys too, actually. I'm curious to hear it, but <laughs> I remember that what sold them originally was a scream. And it was a scream that they took off of a sample, I think, from a cartoon or a movie. Oh, wow. That the the song stops, and then it's a high-pitched scream, and then the song comes back in. Weren't they also the band that was putting, like, their death metal to, like, the Simpsons cartoons or something on YouTube? Or Weren't they the band doing that? I think, yes. And yes. that was giving them a lot of... Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they did that, and they had the scream, and that was what sold them. It wasn't all this other stuff that engineers care about. And actually, as they got better, yeah. they became a better band, got better production, their sales went down. No shit. I could tell you my job for a cowboy story, if you want. Let's hear it. So, Wills Putney's my, you know, he's now my engineer. Now meaning back then. At this point, yeah, at this point. So, and, um, you know, Will loved me because I'm a god and all that, and, and, um, Will's like, machine, listen, there's this new, there's like, it was, it was like, you know, West Coast death metal, which I was completely unaware of, honestly, uh, which Will knew everything about was like, it was starting to connect and it started in, in the scene, it was kind of become a big thing. And there was like two bands. It was Suicide Silence and Job for a Cowboy. And yep. Will was just like, gagging for me to reach out to these bands and produce them. So I was like, awesome, let's have them in. So we had one day in the studio where I invited Job for a Cowboy down and we mic'd up and we jammed and we recorded some demos. And then I did the same thing with Suicide Silence with, you know, rest in peace with Mitch, the original singer. And, yeah. and there was just no contest. Like Suicide Silence was to me, such a better band. Job for a Cowboy couldn't, nice guys. They, I just thought they couldn't get out of their own way. They were so hung up on being so technical and so metal to a default. And here comes Suicide Silence and they're just chill 
and smoke weed and and then here comes Mitch and he's a star and they and they just they genuinely you could tell they want to be a big they want to be a big band you know and um it was easy choice so Will and I did that No Time to Bleed Suicide Silence record as a result of that it's my favorite one by the way oh thanks man yeah yeah that was <laughs> me figuring out death metal you know what I thought the problem with Chauffeur Cowboy was, and I've told them this, so I'm not okay. I'm fair not enough. Afraid is that because my band toured with them a lot in those early days, oh, right. and they were like 17 years old, and they so badly wanted to be accepted by the by the technical bands, yeah, that they changed their sound so that they could not be like the teenage cartoon band. Right. Because they, they had like a, they felt really uncomfortable about that for so, for whatever reason. Because back then they were getting put on tours with like Behemoth and like Gojira and like right. bands, like serious, serious bands. I think even Lamb of God at some point. And, you know, so serious metal bands. And then there are these kids that got big on MySpace because of a cartoon and a scream. Yeah. And they felt really insecure about it. So yeah, they yeah. kept trying to make themselves be more brutal, more technical, heavier, faster, all that stuff. And it kind of, what they got famous for kind of just went by the wayside. Whereas I think Suicide Silence just refined it more and more and more. Like, their songs stayed simple, catchy, mm-hmm. pulverizing. Mm-hmm. Well said. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's my take on that whole situation. So, can we talk about Will for a moment? Yeah. Because our audience loves Will. I've known Will I for love years. Will. Yeah, he's a... And, you know, he's definitely... Will's my first... Will's my first intern. And he's made quite the name for himself. Yeah. So... I think that it's very interesting that you didn't come up through the traditional studio system where interns become engineers and come up under somebody. And then eventually, you know, they come up under the right person, they get taught the right things and then become a, you know, eventually they go their own way. That's kind of the the birth life cycle of a producer coming up right? Yeah. in the, in the traditional sense, but you didn't come up that way. I didn't. And I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to uh, kids uh, thinking they're to get into this, but I did I, not necessarily if that's, if that's where your heart is. And, but if, if you want to be in heavy music, which first, you know, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that, but I love, love, and I'm so proud that I got to do that. I got to be that producer for other people like Zach Servini and Will Putney, Josh Wilbur. I didn't know that you were behind those guys too. Man, you've got a track record for spitting out some uh Yeah, man. Some achieved guys. Thank you. I'm proud of that. And every time I hear about their you successes, I'm like, it really makes me really feel chuffed. I'm really happy for I'm really it makes me happy as well as they must, of course, be happy. So, and I appreciate people that come around to help me out very, very much. I don't haze them or do horrible things like stories I hear. (laughs) So, uh, all right, so let me ask you something then, because those are three guys that are among the best 
of the best right now. Will That's, is yeah. in his own right one of the best of the best for extreme metal. Uh, Josh is best of the best for the more commercial metal stuff. And he's just amazing. And Zach has been doing stuff like Blink-182. So the three of them are just top top of their game. What sets them apart? Like, did they have anything in common that yes. set them apart from a lot of the other guys? Oh, yes, they did. Let's talk about that. You can tell it when a kid walks in the room in minutes. Absolutely. They just had, they had it. They had... You know, you have to want to be in the studio. That was me as a kid. You know what I mean? It's like, you can't be too much of a cool kid. It's just a little nerdum that's really important. And um, it's a combination of your biological DNA of how well you hear music and understand music and your drive to want to just do it all the time, to want to be there. That was me as a kid. I thought it was... Really cool for me when it was like, you know, Joey or, you know, Tony or whoever, Nat was like, hey, dude, let's, we're, we're going out, we're doing this. And, and I would say, hey, hey, man, I'm, no, I'm actually, I'm in the studio tonight. I thought that was cool. I liked, I liked saying that because I felt, wow, it was a big deal to even be, first of all, to get in the studio was hard. He, again, we weren't born with studios in our laptops. So, yes. And that's what all, these guys have they have they're unstoppable they're you can just tell you know it's a rare brain type to do what we do you know and you can and you find in people it's great it's rare because you sort of have to be very math and and technical oriented and yet at the same time there's another side of your brain to be really successful you have to be creative and then there's a third thing which is extremely important and you have to be this kind of people person politician type of personality to make people great to bring the most out of the people you're working with and that's a rare breed that's like a hard brain type to find some people have two of the three you know and they still they still they still do well but i guess when you get all three lined up yeah. then get out of the way did you have other interns and engineers who weren't quite as tons okay so these guys these guys stuck out out of a whole group of people oh yeah zach servini walked in he was in high school still he's a young he's a young man he came to the machine shop he was in high school still and 10 minutes i was like could you just come around and hang out here we just talked about music saw stuff that he had already done records and i was like I train spotted that kid in a millisecond. I was like, and, <laughs> and I was like, you know, he's a good boy. And he's, he's, he's a good, he's a good son. He's a good boy. And he, he went to school. I was, I was trying to get him to drop out of school, and like stay at the machine job. <laughs> and then, and then he was, uh, he really wanted to, you know, he had big sights for himself. And that's also the belief this was great about Zach and you have to believe in yourself too in this industry and and he he really wanted to do after he had done a good amount of stuff with us he wanted to do the west coast thing and I worked with John Feldman like there's stuff I, I'd done we had done like four years strong we had done that record both together and um, we had the same management for a while crush management and he mentioned 
Feldy to me. So I called Feldy like personally for him and said, John, you want this kid. I'm sure you get a lot of interns and they're knowing, just trust me, Zach's coming to town. You want him. <laughs> and that was, that was, and that was that. And he never left and they're just killing it. You know? Yes, they are. Killing it. Damn. What about Josh Wilbur? Because, I mean, he's killing it, too. Josh Wilbur was not an intern. Josh Wilbur was hired as, like, an editor engineer by me on the first Lamb of God record. No, second, no, Sacrament, second Lamb of God record. And then I wound up using Josh to help me track and engineer records a, a number of times post that. And then Josh soon there just became so badass he was just doing you know his own pr- producing gigs but no but josh did not start as my intern just he was just like hired Dude, he's incredible yeah i remember for years when people would say who their favorite metal mixers were i'd say josh wilbur and people would be like who and now everybody knows but i think he's gotten really popular in the past year year and a half yeah but for the longest time he was like this secret badass that kind of was doing big records, but flew under the radar, I think, in terms of people's consciousness that he existed. Let me ask you an important question, which is I need to know for myself. Did he fly under the radar because he wasn't big on social media or did he fly yes. under the radar for some other reason? No, I think that that's a big part of it. Because he would do like a record by Gojira, which everybody loves. Yeah. And a lot of the producer kids would be like, that Gojira record is the shit. But I feel like Josh is not really into social media or talking about his production in public, and which I know because I've tried to get him to come on this podcast and stuff. And he's uh, turned me down multiple times. So I'm still going to keep on trying, though. Good. Because... I think at one point he'll finally say yes. But um, I think that, yeah, so I think it took a number of records in a row where people, because if you see his name once, right, like on Gojira, but then you don't hear about him much after that and he's not promoting himself. Or or he's doing other genres, like yes. he's, doing, he's doing a pop record or he's doing this, which is what I, you know, always aim to do myself. So there's like, he's falling off this, this scene's radar and so yes. on and so forth and that. I think it takes multiple records that are successful in a succession for people to really notice or active social media or a combination of the two. But if you're not yeah. doing social media and you're not sticking in one genre, people's attention spans are just not, not great not great these days. But I think because what well, he's did like Trivium and Megadeth and all that mm-hmm. remains and uh Corn and just so I think Five Finger Death Punch too is in there now. Oh wow. So yeah, yeah so so many records in a row. I think that uh that now people just know that he's the shit. Yeah, he certainly is. And what about Will? What was the story with him? You got him as an intern? I, yeah, I got him as, as a, he was my first intern. And um, talk about conviction. Will was at Stevens Institute. I was in Weehawken by the syndicate. That's where my studios were. Will was attending Stevens Institute, very prestigious engineering school. And uh, took some audio classes, you know, some, 
he didn't really, he was very green when he came to me. And um, this motherfucker, he had like two credits left to get, like two, something like two credits left to get a like physics, like I forgot what, I got to ask him what it was. It was like a bioengineering degree, something that's like nearly impossible to get. Two credits away and meets me and I offer him an intern and leaves that behind. He could have finished it. He just stopped and just hung out with me every day, all day, and soaked up everything I had to give him. And to date, I don't think he got his degree. And he does, he's not going to need it because he's going to be just fine. I think fine. he's done all, I think he's done all right. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, do you know, do you know that Will just put out this, uh, Kemper guitar tone producer Kemper, Kemper bundle? I know that it was about to come out. Yeah. I want to plug it for him. I do want to plug it for him. It's on, it's on STL tones. And, um, yes. you know, I, I, I kind of taught this guy how to fucking record a guitar. So, <laughs> and now he's, and now he's, certainly taking it further on and he's a he's a guitar tone wizard and i and this this pack is going to be amazing sounding so definitely you know if you're if you're not like me and have a history of buying tons of amps and it's smart for you to have a kemper because you can have all that in one spot and as much as I absolutely hate Kempers and Axe Effects, I only hate them because they're actually really good. <laughs> you know, like it was really fun and cool to like diss on guitar plugins because I could like, sh- I could beat those every time with miking up paper. You know what I mean? Getting an have a miking up paper. I was like, yeah. But like, yeah, these are getting really good. So if you're, you know, if you're smart and you're not going to buy all these amps and you're going to buy a Kemper Axe Effects. These will be unbelievable tones and an unbelievable package of just badass. I'm sh- I'm sure. I'm sure of it too. Yeah, STL tones, and I know that uh, yeah, lots of guys in our community have been talking about it. They're looking forward to it. Good. So yeah, now I'm gonna have to buy a fucking Kemper. <laughs> you don't have one. I'm I'm holding off. I'm like I'm holding off. So this is what I've been doing, right? So this is what I've been doing when I dial up. For first of all, remember this to you. A lot of my bands now have a thing about it. Clutch, you know, bands like that or Crowbot, like they're real traditionalists. So for a different band, they would be all good. But so, so that's one reason I'm not, I wouldn't use it a lot. But what I have been doing is when I dial these great sounds, I like borrow my friend's Kemper and I've been modeling them. So when the day comes that I have it, I've got some of my tones ready to go. But no, I haven't bought one yet. But I certainly will. I'll certainly buckle down. I, I got to tell you, man, I feel like Kemper is one of those pieces of gear, like we were talking about earlier, that... Oh, it's going to stand the test of time? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think so. It It changed the game for me when I got it because I also had tons of amps and I was at a studio that had tons and tons of amps. And yeah. I definitely, at that time, thought that amps were better. Now I think that the modelers are yeah. good enough to where you can use wh- whichever. You can go whichever way and get great tones. Well, like, but, what we, like what we said about the stressor or certain gear, I don't know if the Kemper, the Axe will stand the test of time, but that concept, that yes. guitar modeling box concept, absolutely yes. will stand the test of time. Absolutely. People aren't going to go back to Mike, you know, 
collecting expensive amps as much and like as I say, miking up paper. Yeah, and then just the idea of being able to, you know, you get an amazing tone on a record and you can model it. That's just it's not fair. Incredible. That's incredible. It's not fair. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's amazing how much things have changed, right? Yeah. We're we're God. We're in. We are in such a period of massive change in our whole industry, both technologically and in business. Like we mentioned earlier in this conversation about bands learning to choose no label and and then on the tech front, what I've seen in the last four or five years in plugins is mind-blowing. You know, these emulation plugins and it's mind-blowing. I never would think to mix in the box previous to what's happened in plugins in the last four or five years. Never. And now I'm there, man. I made it. You're mixing in the box? All the money is invested in analog gear for the way in, and then it's in, and it's all stays in, and the money's invested in plugins. I was like the origin one of the original hybrid mixers. Like when you didn't have to go to a big studio or mix or, or make the band broke and mix on an SSL or whatever or Neve, I was one of the original hybrid mixers. I figured out, I'm like a, I'm, I'm a real scientist, you know, by nature. I figured out really early on, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, what's the problem with it? Yeah, mixing the box. Like I tried it, you know, really, really early on, probably even in 16 bit. It's like, oh yeah, well, it's the summing. Blah, blah. And I figured out really, really early on that if I went out in stems and went through a really cool analog summing mixer, I could trick it. I could make it really analog. I did, I, I did that forever. I did that really, really early on, you know, before there were many, many products that were invented for this purpose. I did it with a, a manly 16 channel tube mixer. Wow. So many huge records were mixed on that, you know. Through that, through stems, through like, you know, would have been eight stereo stems. And I graduated from there and did much more tricky things with hybrid mixing since, but that's where it started. You know, I went away from the tube mixer and, and then learned why I like transformers over tubes or op amps or we're getting really nerdy right now. That's uh, all right. But yeah, I learned that. I learned that I like me likey transformer. <laughs> but now you're in the box. No, now I invest all my money on transformers and mics and gear for the way in. Right, got I've it. got the barn, which is like this beautiful, epic, big, amazing recording room, tracking room, and nothing on outboard gear, summing gear, on a mix chain. All that stuff, no more investing there. By the way, it's good now, right? But dude, what's the theory of evolution? Right? Honestly, what's the theory of evolution? Like there was like some dude like swinging a jackhammer breaking rocks and then like swinging a, like a pick breaking rocks and the jackhammer came out and like, come on, it beat the fucking dude who was swinging the hammer. So it's like, so it's like, it's good now. And then look what's happened in five years. What's going to happen in another five years? And, and now I'm just thinking, I just don't want to be behind the curve. I don't want to be behind the ball. So even if it's debatable now, I'm in because I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that old guy that's behind the ball when it's better. 
Because the theory of evolution, technological evolution, tells us it will actually become better. Of course. I mean, there's no way around it. It's almost there now. So speaking of the barn, I remember when I heard that you were moving there, you were leaving the Northeast and going yeah. to Texas. Why? And I was actually surprised. Like someone told me, that you were retiring from production, which what? then I realized, yeah, that's what that's never. What, what, well, see, that's the thing. <laughs> people, you were a, an enigma to lots of people. Yeah, so yeah. That rumor went around, and obviously it was untrue. And then people were like, "He's just starting his studio back up in Texas, and Will is staying in New yeah. Jersey." Yeah, the machine shop at the time was then deeded over to Will. What inspired you to move? Oh, a lot of things. A lot of things. It's just tough. It's like, it's hard living on the East Coast. And we, we always wanted to move someplace where it was warmer and it was a thriving music place. I mean, I moved to Austin, Texas. So come on. It's it a great like, scene. Uh, you know, and what, what, what would have been the obvious choices? Uh, it would have been California and that doesn't work for me. We don't have to talk about why. And or Nashville, I'm not really that country or you know, it's getting better. There's cool alt rock coming out of Nashville, but nah. And then there's Austin, Texas, you know, which is, you know, a thriving great community of that prides themselves on live music majorly. And I just every time I went to Austin, I just and it wasn't for South by Southwest. I mean, I would go there to work or whatever. I produced part of the King Crimson record in Austin. That was the first time I went to Austin. It felt like the, uh, the coolest place and it was more affordable and I could do this thing. So in other words, as adapting my way of adapting to the changing record industry is, a, you know, as the budgets weren't there to rent big studios and you had to, it was all ins and this and that. First, I went from these cool overdub spaces in Weehawken, and that's like the machine, the original machine shop that you've seen on early videos. And then, and then we would, then I was going out and paying for drum rooms, right? And so that was, and that worked. And then that wasn't working. So I was like, well, I'm not, shouldn't even be paying for drum rooms. So I need a good, so we, at that point, we, I needed to have a place. And I had Will, and he was starting to do his own records. So I created this thing that I called like my tattoo shop, where it's like, you know, a tattoo shop is like, so it's machines tattoo shop, but there are other chairs and other tattoo artists have chairs. And they rent chairs and they work out of, they work out of that tattoo shop. So, so that was the idea. So we found this place in Belleville that had this central, great ambient, incredible drum room and with these satellite offices that were control rooms. And I could have a room, Will could have a room, Jay could have a room and so on and so forth. So that's, that's how that came. That's how that all came about. And now that moving on, you're asking about the barn. I wanted to just, we wanted to move and I, and I didn't want to do, it's really important for me to not do what the trend was, but, you know, very big in California, which is, you know, maybe build something off your house, you know, or do something in your room. And, and I don't know, man, maybe this is just like, you know, kids, young kids and bands don't know the difference, but it's important to me. And the feeling that I had growing up, going to these amazing big studios and I call it, I call it the rock and roll fantasy. 
It's like, you know, I was, I've always said that. I always tell this to everyone, Will, Zach, everyone that we're working there. I was like, going to record a record shouldn't feel like you're going to your mom's house. You know, it shouldn't feel like your house. It should be a space that feels great and you can do anything. And so, and, and it's just an epic place. Sounds good in there. A band can all play together and just it feels right. And, 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 uh, so I took all the knowledge that I had from going to these big studios and I was, instead of like going into a commercial space and making it work for the first time, I had the opportunity to make from ground up, build my own building. And it was, it was inspired as a, by a barn design, by having great experiences back in the day, going to famous barn studios like Bearsville, you know, or or Longview Farms in Wales, like where Led Zeppelin was recorded, and you know the Queen, and and I always thought ah, this barn barn studio thing is cool, like it feels really good to to be in a barn. So and it and it's cheap. Building a barn is a simple simple build, a simple structure, and it works for the way I work because I work all in the same room also with the band. I don't have I don't like separate separation. I don't have a separate control room. That's, that's everyone who's worked with me knows that's like my style. So yeah, dude, I, I could, I could sell my house in New Jersey and I bought eight acres, you know, it's a 30 minutes outside of downtown Austin. I bought eight acres. You know how big that is? That's like six football fields with their end zones put together. That's quite sizable. I had three acres in Florida, a, a studio I had, and that was big. Eight is just yeah. Well, I, talk about isolation. I could sell my house, and for the profit of that, I could buy this acreage and build this barn debt free in cash, and I could provide this what well, this thing I call the rock and roll fantasy, and it's paid for. I'm not paying rent. I'm not doing this, and that was my smart business, you know, entrepreneurial idea of how to keep existing and doing what I want to do every day, which is make records for, and it makes sense within the chain, ever changing budgets, you know, and still giving like that rock and roll fantasy, you know, that that's so important to making a record, man. The feeling of good energy and good vibes and putting bands into places where they're not afraid and, and it's exciting to be in every day. That's that's a secret weapon to making great records. Now, do you live on that property too? Don't anymore. I did at first. And then there's some personal things, personal family things. And I'm I'm back where I'm talking to you from now in another sort of like overdub mix room in Asbury Park, New Jersey. This is where I, I grew up in Jersey. I'm here for now and doing things and it's important for family. So like going on tour, like when there's a full band to record, we fly out to the barn and track it. And I mix out of this place and I'll do like maybe for every gig I get, maybe two out of three of them are mixed gigs and one and three is a, a producing, you know, recording mixed gig. So I'm here most of the time. And then I've got my guys, my new Will Putneys of the world, that are stoked. They get to use the barn and I want them to use the barn when I'm not there. That's actually kind of like my situation. I've got a studio in Florida with a producer named Andrew Wade. It's a big facility. Basically it's me, Andrew, and this band called A Day to Remember. And it's just kind of of like a 
Yeah, he well, he's produced them, and so it's awesome. He's produced most of their records, and so it's like their singer and Andrew started the studio, and I've got like a few rooms in there, and I don't live in Florida. I live in Atlanta. Right. I used to have a studio in Florida, which I sold, and then I moved over to this place with Andrew. But it's like a big facility. It's like 6,000 square feet, and so Andrew's wow. got a few rooms. I've mm-hmm. got a few rooms, and then a day to remember has like their own area of it. And I just go down there when there's stuff to do. Yep. And then I leave because I, and at my old studio in Florida, the one. And you're focused when you're down there. And exactly. Boom, yep. Well, my old studio, the one that was on the three acre lot was in my house. The studio was in my house and the band stayed there. Yeah. And man, it made me so miserable. And th- these were good bands too. Like this was, I was working on a lot of good bands that sold records and everything. But, and so career wise, it was very good, but the living situation made me miserable. It just made me miserable to not be able to leave yeah. the, my work environment and to always be around the bands. And it made me kind of resent my situation somewhat, which is funny because, you know, a lot of people would kill for that situation. But I think that being able to go home is a big deal. Yeah. It helps your focus so much. I kind of just knew that. I, I have a natural, natural ability. I kind of just knew that all along before ever trying to do something in a house. Like I... I said earlier too, like we all have our sort of natural strengths and natural weaknesses, right? That's no one's like Mr. Perfect, you know, in every way. And I sort of, I sort of like, you know, I'm, I don't do a lot of social media. I don't do a lot of reading. I'm pretty highly dyslexic and it's just, it, it's, it's tiring and it's, and it's not fun and it's not entertaining and it's, and I don't do a lot of that, but, I've been blessed with this street smarts, like growing up and being in the special class and, and, and it was a, not a good time. I don't look back at my school years, but I was, I had, I was good at music and I just sort of had this and it was, and there was like some sketchy parts of my town and I just sort of had this like a, a natural street smarts that I apply to everything. I apply, you know, and I just kind of know I can see what's often going to work and what's not going to work. I talk to bands all the time about, you know, looking at things from a street smart perspective when we make creative decisions and, and so on. That's, that's a word I've always used. I, I should do. And again, not, not having gone to school for recording and this and that, just, just, you know, just sort of like being a scientist and, and, and using common sense and tweaking on stuff and making mistakes. You know, I always talk about street smart recording. It's like, if I was to ever do like a video series, that's what I would do. I would call it machines, street smart recording techniques. And it would be interesting because to watch me go through a process because I don't have like the same terms for a lot of things people do. And, and the way I think and the way I approach micing mm-hmm. stuff up and doing stuff is, not off YouTube and it's not off a manual. It's not off that. It's just sort of like using common sense and, and so on and so forth. This band, Blue Water Highway, that I'm doing now, who's like a 
Americana hosier or like a dirtier Cold War kids, you know, that you could put, you could, you could, you could put them in the Imagine Dragons or Coldplay category, alt rock type band, right? We had a real Leslie speaker, the spinning speaker to mic up. True, truthfully, I'd never mic'd up a Leslie before. And I didn't tell them that, but, um, I didn't want to go to YouTube and I didn't want to look at a manual on how to do it. I wanted to, I wanted to look at it, understand it, walk around it with my ears and find places where I thought it sounded cool and pick mics that I, I know from just trial and error, what they sound like in the end game and, and see what I would do, you know, and then check it, make sure it's dope. <laughs> And it's funny because it's sometimes it turns out that I then go later and watch something or pick, see a YouTube video and go, Oh, yeah, that's how a lot of people do it. I just, I, I like to, I need and I like to stumble across stuff in my own way. I think it's, it's important for me and I'm secure in it because I've done it so much. And I, you know, I, I'm not going to make stupid mistakes, you know, and, um, that's, that's an important part of my methodology. You know, it's like, it's just like a chef. You can learn to, uh, anyone could cook something, anyone could follow a recipe, but like the, the, the great chefs have been tasting and trying and doing methods and, and heating and cooling and cooking methods. And, and then they just get these instincts about marrying spices and, and techniques on cooking that make them the world's best chefs. You know, right. and that just comes from doing it, doing it, experience, trial and error. And, um, that's the guy I want to be. Now that reminds me, you told me to, to ask you about something you're working on, on this record. Uh, that's a total game changer. Is that what it was? No, not at all. It's something totally spacey and crazy. Maybe even too like trippy and out there for this podcast, but. It's, it's a great story. <laughs> now I'm really curious. <laughs> all right. So, all right. So basically, I, I think I found God on this record. Actually, no, no, no. No, I didn't find God. I got it. I understood the God code. I, I understood, I, I cracked the religion code on this record. All right. I want to hear about this. All right. So I am raised 100% atheist. There was a, no religion in my family whatsoever. And, uh, completely un, uneducated in religion. I would maybe, I, I have images of like going with friends on the block to church or a synagogue when I was maybe, I don't know, five, six, seven years old. So not, not even traditional stuff. Just no, nothing. dude, my parents are atheists. My grandparents are atheists, which you'll never hear about. Wow. <laughs> so this band are, uh, they're not, a, they're not a Christian band at all, but, they go to church and the drummer in this band was one of these guys raised in the church from like playing in front of that, playing in front of tons of people from when he was five years old on drums. And he's all connected in the whole like real gospel. I'm talking like, you know what I'm saying? Like the real like gospel urban church thing. It's the South. And he's, he grew up in this and he was amazing. And I'm a huge fan of people raised that perform in the gospel churches, right? They're incredible musicians. Ridiculous. So, so he invites me down. So I wanted to go. Like, I, never, I was like, this is sick. Like, I've never been to like 
not only have I not been to church, but I've never been to like, you know, this is what I would love to see. I've never been to one of those true, like, you know, big, big mama, like singing for God, like and funky. It's like gospel churches. So I drove, yeah. So on Sunday, I drove down to his church where that, you know, he's been playing with and his family and playing with and he's been doing it forever. And um, I roll up to this place and it's like rolling up to a, freaking venue like this place has like an 8,000 person cap and I walk and and I walk in there and I'm like basically the only white kid oh yeah I have to say too I kind of like I hit my bang stick I smoked some weed in like the parking lot before I went in too <laughs> but just to make it even that much more like stony and amazing right so I'm like <laughs> and I'm okay I'm like okay with putting myself in different <laughs> different situations so I go in there and it was, first of all, it was awesome. I mean, it was like a show, you know, it was pure excitement. It was like, talk about audience crowd participation, talk about, I mean, the most re- incredible singers, incredible things. And then it's great. And then, then I'm listening to the preacher when he's talking and, and I, I, there was whatever Bible references and stuff I, I didn't connect to, I didn't understand, but I took away something that just clicked. I was like, oh. This religion thing, I get it. These guys are like the curators and enhancers of positive energy. Because that's what, it's like, so yeah, people are going to the church and they give some of their money away, but this is what they get. They get to be a part of these, these positive belief energy systems, right? So basically it's like, and I was just like, so yeah, what is God? It's energy. It's, you know, I don't know about, you know, this Bible and what they told or that Bible, what they told and the stories that, you know, were used to, to, you know, control nations and whatever. But what they are selling is belief, positive belief, positive energy. And that is a very, very real thing that I've always known about. You know, the power of attraction, the sort of in the studio or in life or just being around positive people, that's a very real thing. There's an energy that comes, there's energy and it's physics and it comes off your body and there's tests on water where people like look at water and it's, it's the label says like beauty, love. And then the other thing here says Hitler or whatever. And like they analyze those, they analyze those crystals and they're very different. Like this is, this is real. And basically I realized that, yo, I was like, George Lucas and Spielberg, they got it right with the force. Like the energy field created by all living things that surrounds us, that binds us, but binds the galaxy together, whatever they would say. I was like, that is religion. I was like, it's the force. And it's like, this is a, this is a very real thing. So I was like, it just enlightened me to think like, wow. It's really, really important in life to really just put out positive vibes and to surround yourself with people with positivity. And this is what this church was really teaching. I'm like, fuck yeah. If you want to know like the meaning of the meaning of God, like from my perspective, I found God because I connected to the, I connected to the sure truth and reality that Putting yourself around positive energy, right? Putting positive energy out into the world and from living things too. Moving back, moving back to Jersey by the ocean, 
being out in the hill country in Austin and being by nature, being around people that, that give off positive energy, giving off so much belief and positive energy, that's a real thing. That works. And that's what, that's what's, that's what's made religion stay in fashion for all these decades. I mean, the story's not holding weight in the Bible, right? I mean, but what all these people are getting is they're getting this positive, this real positive energy surrounding them and it's changing their lives and it's working. And, and amen to that, yo. You know that that saying that uh, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with? Have you ever heard that saying? No, but that makes so much sense. I totally agree with that. And if it plays right into what you're saying, that uh, I think not only we give out good, you know, positive or negative energy, but we also take it in. And so I think oh, yeah. it's super, it's super important to surround ourselves very consciously and deliberately with the right things so that we can put out the right things and, and benefit from them and also help others benefit from them. And uh, I've seen it go both ways in my life, being around people in situations that put out bad energy versus mm. people in situations that are more like what I would want, ideally. And the difference is, is not small, let's put it that way. The difference is huge. Yeah, yeah. It's real, and it's. I even think it's science. Like, it's so real. Well, I'm sure there is a scientific level to oh, it. Oh, yeah, no, no, it's energy. That's what we are. We're water. So I think we're 75% water our bodies and we're sodium and the ocean is the exact same fraction by the way water and salt and the force it's an energy field created by all living things it surrounds us and penetrates us and binds the galaxy together fucking george lucas the force that's god <laughs> that's george god lucas is god <laughs> And that's real. He definitely figured it out. Yeah. Big time. So um, I've got some questions here from our listeners. Awesome. That I'd like to ask you because we've been on here for a while and uh, I don't want to, uh, <laughs> I don't want to take up your whole day. All good. But uh, I want to get to some of these questions because like I said, people are uh, very excited to have you on here. So... Here's one from Rodney Altenbaugh, which is the making of Sacrament DVD is something I watch a lot and often. I love your hands-on approach with the band and helping Randy come up with vocal lines. What advice can you give us to be as included as possible with the band in making musical decisions? Earning trust immediately is your job as a record producer and, uh, Absolutely. It's like, um, and I'll tell a band too, whether I've been recommended to the band by maybe someone they're working with, like an A&R guy or a manager, or even if it's come within the band that the bands maybe are fans of some of my other records, I will tell a band too. I, my first job is to earn your trust. And that's not just because of my discography. And wait, don't talk too much at first. Don't, don't be over the top at first. Be poignant, say the right things, and be sure of yourself, and and earn earn the trust. That's your job. 
if we're talking about record producers here, right? That's your job, or, or movie directors, right? We work with actors and scripts, same as us, right? The, the scripts are, the scripts are the songs, and the actors are the musicians doing them, right? And they're telling a story, and, and, and they may have input on that, and they, they have to figure out how to sell it. That's what we are. We're, they shouldn't call us record producers, we're director, the producers, they should call us directors. That's what we are. So, like they, like they have to do. You have to earn the trust of your, of your artist. And, um, that answers Rodney's question, how to, how to engage them and make them believe. And, you know, it's okay if you don't have the answer, by the way. If you're producing a record and you don't have the answer, it's okay to chill and work with what you got and think about it until you do have the answer or discuss creatively as a group how could this be better, blah, blah, blah. Not just fucking be like, this fucking course sucks, and walk out of the room and let them do it. That's the worst thing you could do. I say, <laughs> I say to a band, I have something in my head, then I tell them that their course sucks, and then I say, but this is why, and what if we tried something like this? Like, what if we flip the beat like that, and I'll maybe sing them something or whatever, and then... I'll, and then I'll let them interpret it into their version of that. So always offer some sort of, not maybe not the solution, but a pathway to the solution. Absolutely. If not the solution, either or. But yeah, you don't tell a band, this isn't good enough and walk away. I would never want to be in a band and hire that producer. You know what I mean? Yeah, so your job is you're a coach, you're a director, you're you're there for guidance and and to promote belief and positive energy, like we just talked about. So here's a question from Craig Douglas, which is are you still tracking symbols and shells separately? And if so, can you explain the process more? Uh, I haven't done it in a while. I do like I don't have a method. I'm a methodless producer. You know, so I I I I meet a band and, and we come up with like, we talk about, you know, who their audience is and who their audience could be. And, and we talk about ways to give them a signature because I think every album should have a signature sound to it. All the great records do. I could pick out guitar tones and, you know, Rage Against the Machine or blah, blah, blah. That's an ex- extreme example, but, but that's really important to me that everything I choose Every band I hope to work with is on that page and wants, you know, something. So that was one of the creations for Lamb of God, right? And I have done it. I've done it a number of times since, but, um, it was really, it was really working for them. If, for that was the right creative decision for them. Because when I, you know, I, when I met Lamb of God, they had just signed to the major label and they could have probably at that moment worked with any metal producer. And I wasn't, I wasn't pigeonholed as a metal producer at that time at all. And my manager said, you know, go meet with these guys. You're going to hate them, but go. <laughs> so hate them as people or hate them as musicians. He's like, you're going to hate them. They're so, they're so intense and they're like so math and they're so, and, and I, and I was like, I wasn't listening to, I didn't know metal yet when I first met Lamb of God. Like I'd done like, very cool 
progressive music. I grew up, I produced a King Crimson record, a Clutch record. I grew up on Yes and Rush and I was, you know, but I definitely never listened to metal as I grew up. I thought metal was like Motley Crue and they were just like disguised pop songs. Yeah. I didn't know metal. I only knew one thing. I knew Pantera. Cause there's, and that was like, that made it into my world of like where I would go out clubbing and dancing to like, dancing to like, there were these clubs where you could go like the limelight on Tuesday nights or when I lived in England, there was anything you could go dancing to a mixture of like heavy shit you could dance to, you know, like public enemy and this and that mixed with like, you know, faith no more and, and other rock things that were, that were super funky. Lamb of God's kind of in a whole different category. Yeah. So, so men, Lamb of God. And, and, I, and the first thing Mark says to me, like they were, I met them at, like at a hotel in New York city. First thing Mark's, the first thing out of Mark's mouth was, so machine, what makes you think that you would know anything better or more to do with our music than we would having that we've been doing it for the last 10, 12 years successfully. I was like, wow. That's a good question. Brutal. (laughs) (laughs) What a way to get started. Yeah, right? I was like, and I mean, I I probably stumbled over my words a, a bit, but basically in a nutshell, what I, what I said was perspective. I was like perspective, you know, I was like on what you're doing and in a way, a way to make it as cred as possible and have more people come to your party, you know? So then I went through the whole list of everything I hated about metal at the time. Cause I, cause doing my research to meet Lamb of God, I went to the electric factory and I saw live, it was like kill switch engage Lamb of God and like two other two other relevant bands that were metal bands that were buzzing at that time. And I'm just like, like I'm like a scientist. Like I'm sort of just like, I never have the urge to, to go like into the pit. Right. And I just understood, I was listening to, wow, the energy flow and what's, what's connecting and, and the needs like, you know, kind of like a, maybe a, the way a DJ would like understand certain beats at certain times in their set or, and I, and I was just listening and why was, you know, why was Killswitch doing a little better than Lamb of God at that time? And I just sort of just like, I just sat there and watched all four bands and listened to like that current day's metal production. And I just sat with them in the hotel and said, this is the problem. I was like, what's up with drums? They don't sound real at all. They sound like drum machines with live cymbals on top. Bass guitar, what the fuck's going on there? No one cares about it, no one can hardly hear it. I was like, guitars, they're like super scooped and, and, and blend in so much, sometimes so busy with the kick drums. And vocals, no one, what, no one gives a shit about vocals? I was like in metal, I was like, <laughs> like you can scream, but doesn't it matter that you hear what the guy's saying, like his message? And, and they were just like, uh, you've got the job. <laughs> Dude, let me tell you also, back in those days when you were doing Lamb of God records and I was really starting to learn about production and I would analyze records, I'd listen to those and I'd be like, 
this doesn't sound like the other records. You can understand his vocals front and center, like on a mm. pop record, yet it's still heavy as hell. And to me, I always thought to myself, this is the reason that Lamb of God is bigger than the other bands, because the vocals are treated the way that you would on a superstar artist. The vocals are nice. out front and you can understand everything. And for years, I've always thought that that was one of their secrets to success was not mixing the vocals like regular metal, but mixing the vocals more like pop. Um, not Obviously not like pop, but like yeah. more in that way where the vocals are the lead instrument. Yeah. Yeah. But now to answer Greg's question about drums, Chris being so metal... So metal, Chris Adler. Oh, my God. <laughs> Chris needed, like these modern records that were, were fully sound-replaced drums, so he needed, his, he needed his drums at all the same volume, and he needed them 100% gridded, and that was a rule. And I wanted drums to sound like drums. So I was like, so again, street smarts, right? I was like, all right, so how can we do this and have our own brand of cool and difference and, and, and achieve the goal. So I was like, well, if I record the drum shells separately from the cymbals, I can, and I, this is what I did. And I had help from engineers and interns. Thank God. I recorded the drums all as overdubs and I individually normalized each hit, every, every literal kick hit, every literal snare, every literal tom hit, individually one at a time went and normalized them so they were all original hits almost like original samples right why samples because they had no cymbal bleed so that to me makes them samples right but individual samples and all individually normalized at the same energy level i guess that was kind of a new thing that was like an original sound and it was and it was brutal and it was and it was giving the energy and giving the the attitude that their audience needed. So that's, so yeah, so for Craig, that's, uh, that came about by streets, but just like a street smart attitude and like, how am I going to, how am I going to make this work and give them their own brand of original awesomeness? So, and I've done it. I, and I, we did that again on Sacrament and Josh Wilbur, my engineer for Sacrament, who who took the reins, he kept doing that too, I believe. So, and that accomplished the goal of having it sound real, but also be totally on the grid, but also be totally metal. Totally metal, totally till every hit evenly as loud. Like you know, you know, yep. like in metal, it's like a marching band instrument, right? It's like every a kick should have on a small speaker, a kick drum should have the same presence as the snare. The tom should have lots of high end and should have the same presence as them. When you're putting together technical riff, like, like they should all, you should be able to hear, you need to be able to hear every hit and understand what's going on musically. So they all, so in Chris's mind, they all, they, it wasn't about, accents with lower volumes and higher volumes they all had to be even but the character and tone changed which was really cool because when you hit a drum light it sounds different than when you hit a drum hard so we had the best of both worlds great answer so here's one from brantley mcminn i'm sure you've been asked about this a lot there's about 10 questions about this so i need to ask <laughs> 
so this is me talking. So here's the Brantley's question. Others have mentioned it, but in Lamb of God's The Making of Sacrament video on the Walk With Me in Hell DVD, you had Randy run around the block to make him sound exasperated during the vocal at the end of Walk With Me in Hell. How did you decide that that's what the vocal performance needed to be? And what other off-the-wall things have you tried to get artists to do in order to get the right performance out of them and also welcome to central texas oh thanks about the texas thing yeah so basically the songs walk with me through hell right and it's 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 amazing it's an amazing song and it's it's desperate and he's and he's beat up i mean that's what the lyrics are so the run around the block thing i will admit i kind of knew i wasn't i mean the guy's like a chain smoker and you know I mean, I kind of knew, I knew I wasn't going to get the, the vocal. I'll be honest. Let's got to keep it real here. I knew I probably wasn't going to get the vocal screams. And if I did, that would be great. But I knew I was going to get the breaths. I knew I was going to get, you know, he came back in, we threw the headphones on him and I just like started pushing the mic in his face because he would try to scream and then pull the mic away and I would be losing the breaths. I know I needed, I needed the breaths. So I would like shove the mic back in his face. It's like, sing, sing, breathe. And, um, in truth, you know, little insider secret information. I, I don't think I got, maybe I got one actual scream line, but I got all the breaths, the real out of real desperate, out of beat up, out of thing breath. And a lot of the, the screams had to come from like concentrated focus studio screaming. So. What other off-the-wall things have I done? But those breaths, those breaths are what give it that vibe, though. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, I wanted them to name, you know, I wanted, they came up with Sacrament, you know, and I was like, I really wanted the record to be called Walk With Me Through Hell. It was like, it was, like, it was too late, though. I, like, called them, I was like, dudes, fucking Sacrament. What is that? It's so metal. It's like, Sacrament. I was like, what was this record? What was the experience of making this record? Walk with me through hell. I mean, look at, look at how that sounds. Just read that. You're not even a metal fan. Just read that. Lamb of God, walk with me through hell. I mean, how inviting is that to turn that track on? You know? And it was too late. Like, they'd done all the artwork for Sacrament. Also. So, they, that DVD that Brantley is talking about. So, they named that Walk With Me Through Hell. But I, if I had my way, Sacrament would have been called Walk With Me Through Hell. Perfect. I like that name better for the record. I know, right? But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, dude, I don't know. Other crazy things I've done. It's fun to come up with crazy things. I've done, I've done a few. I can't, none are really coming to mind right now. Uh, if you think of something, that's cool. If not, no Far worries. Oh, yeah, well, on Blue Water, we just... On Blue Water Highway, the band right now, we, um, this, this sort of like real dark, awesome country song, a country-esque song. He's a great soul country singer. And, uh, I let, you know, you know, at the machine shop in Texas, basically the slogan there is we can do whatever the fuck we want. Cause I have eight acres. So I, uh, lit like a gargantuous bonfire and I, I recorded him outside three live takes that we comp together and I put him by the fire and we filmed it was a really cool experience and just for him to put him in the the space about what that was doing and I was like it's like 
what are you doing to me, machine? I'm like, so here, I don't want to burn you alive, but I want you to be close enough to this fire. I want to hear the crackles even from the fire. I want it to be like, about halfway through the song, I want you to be starting to get really uncomfortable from the heat. So I won't won't kill you or burn you alive. Just get like, how about like five feet from that huge flame? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that just happened the other day. That's a good one too. I have a question for you that's not on here. Cool. I'm a b- big mindless self-indulgence fan, have been for a while, and their production is so unique. That was such a unique thing. And when you started talking earlier about how you came up making beats and stuff yep, I, and adding guitar over it, the first thing I thought was that explains a little, in my head, that explains you working with mindless self-indulgence because that's almost what their production sounds like is in some ways old school hip hop beats with like guitar through a sampler or something, but like, you know, modern. That's what exactly what it is. They, I mean, they, they did even at that time when you could start working on pro tools, Jimmy, who's brilliant is still sampling guitars and, and triggering them with MIDI still doing that, you know, and just doing it all on the sequencer. That's how I had to start. You know, I, I had no choice but to do that. But yeah, that's what he does. Yeah, Jimmy and I, Jimmy's, talk about, talk about earning trust. That kid is very, very, he's a great artist, very talented, very precious about who he lets into his, his scene. But we, we were matched big time and we hit it off and it took a minute, but I earned his trust. And it was great to be a part of that record. Okay. That's what I, that's what I thought it was, man. I, I thought that that's what it sounded like and, one of my all-time favorite records and productions. One of the times, you know, so like we were saying earlier too, sometimes the best sounding records aren't your favorite records or whatever, but like, I feel like their production is just perfect for for them. It like just, it sounds just right for what their music is. It's just a great, uh, just a great team, it sounds like yeah. to me, you and them. So, all right, here's one from Connor Gilkinson, which is, what goes into your distorted rhythm guitar tones? Do you like to layer tones and amps and drive mic pre's, blend in distortion pedals, or do you have other more unique tricks? Or is it a simple, fairly straightforward process for you? Like, you know, 57 on the Mesa cab with the 5150 and you're done. Okay. This is the guy you're talking to. This is the the methodless guy. I'm going to answer this. I'm sure every record. It's there's a new plan for every record. I've done it all. I've done like, I've done lots of miking techniques, lots of different stuff, and absolutely, there's there's things that I'll do for metal, and it's going to be totally different than Blue Water Highway I'm doing right now. It's all combos, all ribbon mics on those cool indie alt rock sound, you know. Like vintage, vintage vibes, like done modern style, like with great, great plugins and great pre's and great, you know, and yeah, there's, there's like the scientists and the chef in me just sort of changing it up. I bet he wants to know about metal tones, maybe. I don't know, Connor, but you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say yeah. probably. So, so I can tell you what I commonly do for metal, right? Which is something that 
I have a way like I separate. I like I go into scientist mode, and I I've, I'll test out a million ways of doing things, and I'll and I, not all, often with the band though. And I'll, I'll come up with these, and then I then I, I get these things, and I go into music mode, and I apply them, and I just don't look back, you know. So so um I kind of for miking metal, I kind of look at um fifty seven and a four twenty one as like one mic. So there's often there's often both of those on a speaker. I went, th- I, used, I went through a phase. Um, I was like really early in on the reamp thing, reamp box thing when it came out. And I, I went through a phase where I was doing like sending to many multiple amps and cabinets and doing blends with them. That's how that was. I did Lamb of God that way. And the sacrament sound was an interesting mistake where all these, it was like maybe three, three, amps and three cabs and and um moving them around and finding trying to find a unique sound and blah blah, blah. and one of the mics was out of phase and um i didn't know it at first but <laughs> one of the mics was out of phase and the, the best sound came is like uh just moving that one fader up a little bit uh it acted as an eq like before it before it was loud enough and even with other mics and would sound out of phase and horrible way before that this is all physics you know way before that it's acted as a subtle EQ and carved this annoying part out of the mids really nicely. And that's how that, that's how a big part of that sound was made. But so I'm in metal doing less than multiple amp and, uh, going for like picking, picking a style. Like we're going to use this, you know, Mesa on this for this part and this orange on that. And, and guys, common sense here, street smarts. By the way, it's pretty common that like when you have an orange amp, the orange speaker cabinet works real well with it. Really common when you have a Mesa amp, a Mesa cab works real well with it. I've switched cabs a ton, but if you're, if you've got less gear and you want to make it work, that works. They, these designers spend a lot of time matching their cabinets with their amps. So that works. <laughs> Common sense, right? Yeah, just a good. So, I, yeah, I look at I look at a fifty-seven to four twenty-one in a way as like one mic, and uh, it will start. What's what's the center thing? The, the the center round part, the the cone, or what's that called uh, on the speaker? The yeah, cap? okay, that's a dust cap. All right, I didn't go to school for this, so give me a break here. Right, so, <laughs> <laughs> so that's the dust cap. So it's like, yeah, th- they both go on sort of like where the dust cap meets the cone. They both kind of start there, right? And the real smart thing to do is, um, if you've ever experimented by moving a mic across a speaker, you can see how it, the EQ changes so much. So I kind of look at those as one thing, and, and those two mics go into a, a usually a, a Chandler TG2, which is a transformer Neve clone based thing. But what's really cool about this TG2 is, um, it has this internal summing. It's two mic pre's in one unit and it has this internal summing. And there's something super magical about that unit, the way it sums its two mic pre's that just seems to blow away any console that probably has to run a shit ton more wires and go to a shit ton more pathways to get to its buses. So this thing, it, this thing just has like this link that it, it just puts these two together. So it's magical. So it's usually going into the Chandler TG2, uh, those two mics. And then this is really smart, really smart common sense thing. I, on the amps, I put all the dials at five, like all the EQ and this and that, right? And then 
if the sound isn't right then, that's when I then go back and move the mics. So what I find is, is that if you mic the speaker where the dials on the amps are where they're designed to be like straight up, then they work, right? You ever, you ever mic up a cabinet and you're like moving up the bass knob and it's not getting much bass here or you're moving that. Yes. Right. Well, that helps this. So it's like, it's really smart to put your dials up straight and see where your mic give you. Then try moving the mics to get the sound good. Now your presence knob, your high end knob, your mid knob, they work. They actually work really much better. And then I do a lot of dialing for the riff. I don't set a sound don't set a sound and like cut the whole heavy song. I like, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll say, play me the riff, please. You know, and if this is a single note riff, like it all goes to the same track and it all goes to the same track on my doll. But I was like, I'll dial for the riff. I'm like, and there's subtle moves. Like I'll move the, oh, if it's single note and he's digging in, I'll like put the presence a certain way or the mid a certain way. That's dope. And then, and if it's this Deftones chord and he's doing all these like, you know, harmonic things and it's going to get rat, it's going to go through the distortion and get ratty and ouchy, I'll, I'll dial for that riff and I'll like, you know, usually lower the mm-hmm. presence and do this. And then into the listener, it, it, it probably just comes out more even and sounding right. So that's another thing I do, which will help Connor. Dial, dial for the riff. Dial for the riff. And when you say dial for the riff, does that mean that throughout a song you will change the amp settings yeah to go yeah okay yeah cool. i change the amp settings so and i i take the d i use a stereo interleave track i take the di and uh i put that on a left and i take my it all goes down just one mono input and i put that to the right and so they're in an interleave track so they're locked together so i can't make editing mistakes you know so and i hope that i i hope that i never ever have to listen to the DI or use it. But if I do, it's always right there attached to the file. And by the way, reamp mm-hmm. people, another great thing learned from mistakes. If you're going to be reamping, the best reamps come from the performances from the tone that was closest to what you're reamping. So right, as a guitar player, if, it's com- if your amp is compressed a certain way or saturated a certain way, you hit the guitar and feel the guitar for that sound. You play for that sound, right? I made mistakes in the past where it's like, oh, we're just going to track through this pod or this plugin, and then I'm just going to reamp it. Well, that affects how good players play, and then the reamps don't work as good. So, so get your sound... Even if you're going to reamp, you're always better off performing into a sound you could dial as close to what you think the end result should be, because that reamp will make the best reamp. That's a great piece of advice, and I can give you the perfect example of that is uh, on the old pods, they used to have this compression yeah. on them, which would make you, like, you couldn't yeah. get rid of it. That screwed me um, up before. So, <laughs> yeah, they would make you pick a lot lighter yep. and then you go to reamp into an amp that keeps you honest like a bogner or something and it where it would reveal every single problem with your picking uh it was all it just didn't sound yeah. good it didn't work right and uh so yeah that's a great great piece of advice right there because i have suffered from that one yeah. many times when reamping right on okay here is a question from mane cabrales which is uh what was your impression experience producing King Crimson? Oh, good question. That was, 
I'm very appreciative that I got to produce King Crimson record. And by the way, it's the I think it's the last ever studio King Crimson record to be ever made. I was just talking to Pat Mastellato, the drummer in Austin. And um they're they're like, no, Robert, Robert Fripp is like he has no intention of ever making another studio record. Robert hates the studio. And it's all about the live performance for him and improv and, and all that. Okay. But so that was, I'm really, really stoked and blessed to be able to, to have done that. And that just comes from, you know, just trying, putting yourself, you know, asking and showing positive energy and, and approaching a band that you're probably not thinking you're going to get, but it's okay. You know, like, I was like, I, it's funny, like, I was, like, a little too nerdy and afraid to approach girls in, in high school. Like, I wouldn't do that. But I have no problem approaching bands, like, at, well, like, in that way, like any band. I will approach them and love to sit and talk to them about music. So that's lucky for me. So, uh, you know, I, I was a big Cream Crimson fan. I spun them a lot at my college radio station. And... um there just turned out there was a connection. Like my manager knew how to get to their manager and I re reached out to them and they, and they liked this head PE track, <laughs> believe it or not, that I, of all things, of all things, because no, because it was a song Pac Bell, which is basically like uh, this incredible, like distorting, looping, massive attack feel of a track, you know, massive attack, but they're a UK. Electronic but, but, band, but still, it's just it's just interesting how unexpected life can be. In that, King Crimson would be into a head PE track, and that's that's the <laughs> they thing. heard that right. Thought, it's just interesting. Oh, you know, this guy's not going to take the King Crimson out of King Crimson. That's impossible. But oh, but he could add something. You know, I see what he's doing and, and the the way these these layers and this growth and this distorted ambience that I, I made with this head PE track, Pack Bell. It's really interesting. They thought that would be a really interesting application, you know, to to bring this kid in, and they did. I mean, just by trying, I've been turned down by many bands. <laughs> the the they took me on and and. And they asked me my opinions on things, and I, I produced King Crimson, and so lucky. And it's crazy. I mean, Robert Fripp is like, it's like being in the studio with Hannibal Lecter, except he's the— Except he's not going to eat you. Except he's not going to eat you, and— and he's and he's actually quite nice, but it's super intimidating because, you know, like Hannibal Lecter would like the way he would talk, he would just cut right to your core and fucking he was a philosopher and just brought you right down to, to, to the truth. So Robert, you know, he would he was rather polite. Robert was though. rather polite and he would come in and have his cappuccino and he would do this and he would sit there and not talk and let everyone talk. And then he would say something once in a while and it was like, oh, yeah, he's right. <laughs> and it was just so meaningful and so so truthful. So it was great. And then Adrian Blue, you're a guitar guy. You would know Adrian. He's he was so oh he's great. He was so great to get to work with and create with, you know. And he's he's the soul. He was the soul of the band. And we spent a lot of time doing part of it at Adrian's house. And um, I'm very lucky. I got to 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 work with those guys. So that's a that's an insight 
for being able to produce the King Crimson record there. It's so cool that you got to work on that. It's they're definitely one of those bands that's just you know in the they helped create what we know as progressive music. Yeah, they're in the in the DNA of all progressive music. Yeah, now, in some way, shape, or form, much in the way that. Black Sabbath riffs right. are in the DNA of every single every single mm-hmm. metal band ever. Well said. So it's it's just cool. That one's just damn cool. Here's one from uh, from Kier Yakos. We haven't uh, we haven't touched on this, but uh, too much. What kind of artists do you want to work with? Like, what excites you now? Now, and for me personally, this is my take on the question: is you've worked on so many genres so many different bands like at this point and you've worked you know on seminal records for some of those bands too so you've kind of done it all in lots of Mm -hmm. ways or some people would think that you've done it all i'm sure you don't feel like you've done it all like what what excites you now like what what gets you going i want to work with great bands period that's it i want to work with people that feel they don't have another choice but to do their band and be in music. That's, how, that's what it was for everyone when I grew up. I want to work with people that are more talented than me and learn. I, I grew up in a household with one of the most proficient classical musicians in the world, my dad, and I'm comfortable around people that are play better than me or think differently than me. And I'm comfortable directing that and bringing a street smart mentality to to making that, uh, making those songs or pieces or artwork more popular in for all of us regular people. I'm a good gap. So I, I want to, uh, to answer that question, I want to work with great bands. I want to work with bands that are going to stick together. I don't really like what I've been seeing in the last while. I see, I visit some, some bands on Warp Tour that are new bands and, and I meet them and they say, they're talking to me. And they're talking to me about what they're going to do when their band's over. And I'm like, what? They're already thinking like, So they're ahead. on Warp Tour, on, you know, summer camp. And that would have been a big deal for me as a kid. And they've already, they're, yes, they live in the world of disposable music. And yes, the world where you can get a lot more of it. But, you know, they've, they're already thinking about what they're going to do when this is over. Don't say that to me. Don't hire me if that's the way you think about music not interested that's what i look for i look for people that are going to do it no matter what whether they're making money at it or not i don't care if you're a big band or a small band you know it's like every band i meet i need to talk to creatively and connect with before we get into a studio i make sure like we're a good match and um it's a big thrill to me to be invited by any of those bands in to help them it's a big honor and a big thrill and um, I really get off on, you know, being able to take a different genre and make it connect to more people. Great. And uh, here's one from Maddie Pellis, which is Boys Night Out, Trainwreck, is one of my all-time favorite records. How much input did you have in the songwriting? None. On that record, none. To be, you know, to be, to, to be honest, like, that was a big concept record, so... With you know, all sorts of, you know, interludes and voices and, and melodies. Sure, I mean, 
that's not songwriting. Like a band comes in and they've written a song that's complete, and I suggest I su- suggest a different melody, or I suggest a different rhythm, or I suggest a different lyric. That's producing. It's not songwriting. So that certainly that happened, but that band had a whole amazing concept record written in like as in chapters, like in a book before I even walked in the room. So sometimes, in my opinion, doing your job as a producer means not meddling with things that don't need to be right. meddled with. God, imagine being the band, right? So let's look at what you're saying. Imagine imagine being the band and ha- having being a, in a studio with a producer and he's trying to make you his band or make you something that he's fallen into, that he's had success with these type of bands. So he's trying to take your band, which is this kind of band, and make it this kind of band. I would be... So bummed if I was that band in that situation. I've been in that situation. It sucks. No, I don't do that. Yeah, I've definitely been there before. And I can tell you from the perspective of the artist, it's not much fun. It makes for a very psychologically exhausting work environment. So I, I, I dig your approach better. Well, Machine... Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. And for spending this much time talking and just being so open. Like, this is a good lengthy episode, and it's been great talking to you. And thanks for your patience also with me last oh, week, because I know that I uh, I, can- I canceled on you like four times. I, I couldn't speak, though. So Fair enough. But, uh, it's all good, man. Thank you so much, man. Thank you. Uh, anytime. I'd love to come back or whatever. You know, it's just great for me Love too to because, you, you know, is there anyone out there that could help me with my social media? <laughs> Give me, a, you know, find me through my website because I'm not going to do it because that's one thing that it's 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 hard for me and it's stressful for me. So this is great and thank you because this is the help I need. You know, connecting to bands and other young aspiring producer engineers, which I would love to do, but until stuff like this, it was only if you showed up. Like Will or Zach, as long as you showed up now, it's great to be able to do this. I like talking better than reading and writing. (laughs) Well, we've actually got other things that we do if you're looking to to do more active stuff online. I can talk to you about it via email or after we get off the podcast sometime. Uh, We've got a few other things you might be interested in. So we'll definitely talk about those and just... Thank you again for coming on. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Balaguer Guitars. Founded in 2014, Balaguer Guitars strives to bring modern aesthetics and options to vintage-inspired designs. Go to balaguerguitars.com for more info. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Fishman, inspired performance technology. Fishman is dedicated to helping musicians of all styles achieve the truest sound possible wherever and whenever they plug in. Go to fishman.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit nailthemix.com slash podcast and subscribe today.